So, a Conservative government with a whopping great majority of 80, elected on Conservative policies. And yes, I know some of you viewers think I'm being a bit harsh on the government, but when you voted blue, did you really expect it to go green? Because that is what's happened, and in a very big way. A whole series of environmental causes, animal causes, um, very ambitious targets for reducing CO2. You know, this really is a government committed to cutting CO2 emissions and believing that if it does that, it will stop global warming. And you saw that very much at the G7 at Carbis Bay, how comfortable Boris Johnson was with those other leaders who all think the same thing. But perhaps the most ambitious target is the government has said they will ban the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030. So we're all going to go electric. And there are practical problems with that uh, in terms of just how much electricity can we produce and our grid system is somewhat ailing. What about the charging points? What about the practicalities you know, say you've got to go um, for a long journey across the country. How many times would you need to stop? How long would it take to actually get enough juice back in the car to go again? There are also environmental questions. You know, how are you going to produce that amount of electricity? What are you going to do with those car batteries? Because nobody yet has managed to answer me the question of how you, how you recycle lithium cobalt style batteries. And then, of course, there's price. But price doesn't seem to matter, because whether it comes to the huge amount we pay on our electricity bills, the new boilers we're expected to put in our home, or the expensive electric cars we're going to be forced to buy, this doesn't bother a government under the influence of the Richmond Greens. Yes, that's right, the people that live in £4 million houses who are inordinately wealthy, members of the upper middle classes who aren't worried about this. But what about everybody else? Now, look, would I like us to go green? Yes, of course I would. Would I like us to be fueled by renewable energy if it was feasible and without taxpayer subsidy? Yes, of course I would. But I am deeply sceptical that this can happen by 2030. That is my opinion. I'd love to know what you think, and you can do that by getting in touch, gbviews at gbnews.uk. And as ever, on this channel, we will give you both sides of this debate. Joining me first to, ask, uh, to answer the question, I hope, as to whether it's feasible to have all electric cars for sale by 2030, is Howard Cox, founder of the Fair Fuel UK campaign. Now, Howard, you've been campaigning for a decade now uh, to stop things like the fuel escalator. And I, I think all sides of the argument would credit you with some degree of success. But, Howard, let me ask you, given this government, given this parliament is so completely committed to this policy, is this perhaps one campaign that you're on the verge of losing? <laughs> well, over my dead body, Nigel, um, the simple fact of life is uh, that there's so many backbenchers on all sides of the House that are really angry with uh, the way we're being, eight and a half years' time, we're being told that we can't buy new diesel and petrol vehicles. Uh, there was no consultation. In a survey that, uh, in a report we published today, um, something like two out of uh, um, three 
respondents actually said quite simply that they, if they'd known in 2019 general election that they would be for, seeing all these green policies, particularly this ban on diesel and petrol, yeah. they would not have voted for Boris. And he would not. And we've worked out that. We've done an extrapolation with some experts on that. That's about five million votes he would lose tomorrow uh, if he actually started the election now. As far so as how, actually okay, whether we Fine, Howard. Fine. You know, we hear these stories about voter discontent, uh, but they do have a big majority of 80 as it stands at the moment. How many members of Parliament have actually had the courage to stand up and say, we need to have a rethink on this? Absolutely not enough. I, I've, got, I've actually zeroed into the ERG group and there's about 35 other MPs uh, uh, and several uh, Labour MPs, a lot of the SNP too and the DUP. I think we can build uh, uh, something like 40 or 50 to actually make a difference in terms of when it comes to a vote. Uh, the point is, Nigel, and it's a simple fact, that this report that we produced today is long overdue and it simply is looking all the things you did in your uh, introduction the cost to buy, the rare earth sources, the slave labour, the shortage of all these uh, uh, rare earth materials, overmining, disposal, you hit the nail on the head. The cost of a replacement average battery for an average family car is five to £10,000. This has not been put together. And all we're calling on in this report, there are seven recommendations, but the head of it is can we have a cost-benefit analysis of what it means in terms of to the economy? And we're talking about, there's, everyone's trying about 1.4 million uh, trillion is the cost to the economy actually going uh, uh, in terms of this uh, uh, ban. But, and we know with the HS2 sort of budget, so that can go up two, three, four times. Uh, what we're asking is a cost benefit analysis to the economy and what it means socially as well, Nigel. What it means we're to told, Howard. Blocks, right? Howard, we're told all the time there's going to be a green revolution. It's going to produce <laughs> huge numbers of new jobs throughout the UK economy. How do you respond to that? Well, I'm delighted to hear that. And every single driver, all 37 million, wants to breathe clean air. And we want to do it right. But we do not want to be done in a dictatorial fashion. In the last 10 years, for example, the haulage industry has reduced emissions by 50%. We don't see that headline. There are catalysts available now. You can put them into petrol and diesel now. Reduces emissions by 50% and also fuel consumption by 15%. We're simply wanting to get the government around the table with the stakeholders to work on this and drop this cliff edge ban once and for all. And let's work together on this to produce a sensible road transport policy. And where did this announcement come from? Because it wasn't in the manifesto, as I remember it. As you say, there was no real public consultation. Where did the decision to say from 2030 there'll be no new sales of petrol or diesel cars or vans, where did it come from? Well, we don't know. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There's one Green MP, isn't there, in Parliament, and that's yep. Caroline Lucas. I mean, Julian Knight said in a nice quote in our report, uh, this policy was wrong-headed from the start, dreamt up in the kitchen diners of Notting Hill. Um, and that's the sort of thing we're hearing. Most of the spads, Westminster spads, arrive on bicycles. They, they're dressed in lycra. I'm pro-cycling, <laughs> but I'm anti-supporting. <laughs> no, it, it, it's true. Uh, I mean, I, I've got a lot of contact this way, uh, in Whitechapel, as you have, uh, Nigel. And I, uh, unfortunately, they don't live in the real world. I live in the heart of Kent. I can't live without a car. And in terms of you made the point about travelling a distance, and even Allegra Stratton, the uh, person that is the face of COP26 yep. for the government, said this week that, you know, she drives a diesel car because you can't trust an electric vehicle. And yet she is leading a, a campaign to make us all drive electric. Where, does it, where is this coming from? I think it's virtual signalling BS. Well, Howard, I have to say to you, 
that we're told by many that we're facing a climate emergency. Are you in denial of this? <laughs> There's climate change, but I'm afraid what we can do to change climate change across the world, especially when China and India are doing nothing and building a coal fire station every day uh, over there, we're 1% of CO2, and CO2 is a great gas. It actually helps all our crops grow and all our runful tomatoes in your greenhouses. The simple fact of life is that there isn't a climate crisis, there isn't a climate catastrophe, there is a climate change going on, but this is just a cyclical thing that's happening years and years. And unfortunately, the government and people in the environmental side use emotive claims rather than science and facts. And I'm willing to take those people on head to head. And finally, Howard, do you think this policy will ever come to fruition? I am sneaking sufficient. We've got to there's a headwind coming along here, and we're building up against this. I think they're going to head of a battle. Bear in mind, the next general election, what is it, three to four years' time, that's halfway to us being forced to the 2030 ban. Um, most of the MPs and most, of, and maybe even Boris, won't even be around then. Um, and it'd be interesting to see. And I'm going to be influencing every single party, and I really mean this, to actually think common things. Get rid of this cliff edge ban. Let technology evolve, hydrogen uh, it, it, you know, synthetic fuels, okay. all these sorts of things, Nigel, let those evolve naturally and do not force people because I'm afraid we're going to have a real problem with only 20% people going electric in 2013. There's still 80% okay. driving fuel. Thank you very much indeed, Howard Cox of the Fair Fuel Campaign. You have certainly made your point. Now, to get a different perspective on this, I'm going to go to Sean Spears, Executive Director of the Green Alliance, an independent think tank focused on green policy. Sean, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good evening. Now, as fellow former MEPs, different parties, different times, but we'll have a debate about this. So, I mean, the point that was made by Howard that this announcement from the government, uh, which is pretty ambitious, I think, by any standards, was made without any real manifesto pledge, without any consultation. And, you know, we understand that it's a government that wants to be environmentally aware and wants to cut pollution and wants to cut CO2 emissions. But, Sean, is it really feasible that by 2030 we could be in a position where just electric cars were the new vehicles we were buying? Yeah, eminently feasible and necessary. But just, just on the manifesto, the, the um, Conservatives promised the most ambitious environmental programme of any nation on earth, and they promised to accelerate to net zero. Um, they, uh, a third of our emissions come from transport, so you've got to do something about transport. And twice in the manifesto, they said, we will consult on the earliest date by which we can phase out the sale of new petrol and diesel vehicles. But and they, they yeah, but they didn't consult. That's the point, really, isn't it? They did. Had a very long consultation. We, we. I mean, I'm sorry if people missed it, but there was a very long and thorough government consultation on it. Right. Well, governments are very good at saying they've had consultations that very few have seen. But let's move on from that and get to more important things. You know, we do not have, and you and I both know this right now. And okay, we're talking nine years' time, but we're nowhere near in the position, are we, to produce that amount? of electricity. We don't have the charging points up and down the country. Sure, work could go in, could, could, could go on with that. But I mean, it simply isn't feasible, is it, to, to, to increase the amount of available electricity by the amount that would be needed? Yeah, I, it is absolutely feasible. And you're, you're reminding me of all the people who said we'll never get affordable offshore wind. And the price is absolutely 
plummeted when uh, investment was put in. And technology is a, a wonderful thing. So it's, it's eminently feasible. I think the dilemma for the UK is do we want to be the last country in the world rolling off the production lines of, of diesel and petrol vehicle? Or are we going to get with the revolution that's happening in every country around the world and get first user advantage? And at the moment, we, we are you know, 6,000 jobs in, in a Coventry factory last month, 6,200 in Sunderland in battery production last month, 1,000 in EV production in Cheshire. This is, this is happening really fast. And I, I don't know why we would stand in the way. This is, this is global Britain. This is, this is the independence you, you fought for in the, well, in the Brexit referendum. Yeah. There's a question, I mean, you know, who pays? You mentioned offshore wind. I mean, you and I both know that wind energy and the massive amount of subsidy that's been given to big companies and to rich landowners, it's ordinary people paying the price of that on their domestic electricity bills. Already, domestic electricity bills are up to a third more expensive than they would be without that subsidy. Now, look, I, you know, I hope that wind energy does become efficient. I hope that we find means through batteries of storing electricity produced by wind energy, but we're not there at the moment, Sean, are we? No, and that was why we got eight and a half years to, to, to get there. But there's massive subsidies for the fossil fuel industry. The reason uh, um, home heating prices are going up at Which the moment one? is because world gas prices are, are going up. So, I, I mean, what, I, I don't, I, what are the subsidies for fossil fuel industries? Lots of tax breaks for fossil fuel, the fossil fuel industry. Um, I'll, I'll come, if I'll be back on the programme, we'll have a separate discussion about that. All right, fine, we will. I promise you, we will. No, no, I'm not against progress, Sean. I'm not against, um, I'm not against us finding cleaner ways to produce energy. But here's the fact. Electric cars are basically great big batteries, you know, with a body around it. There are far fewer components which, of course, means that in all the component industries, huge numbers of jobs will be lost, far more than will be employed in battery making. I, that is my contention. But here's the real point. Because of the cobalt and lithium that is needed for those batteries, and because we're actually living in an age of rising commodity prices, aren't you actually going to put motoring and the cost of a new car just way beyond the pocket of ordinary folk? No, not at all. And, and actually, um, it's funny that Howard's sort of complaining about rising petrol prices, but he wants to carry on dri driving petrol cars. These, these, uh, an EV pays for itself within three years. What we need to do is get a, it's a big second-hand market so we can all afford them. And because they are, as you say, simpler, there's less to go wrong, and they've got a, a better life um, span than, than petrol and diesel cars. It, it's, you know, it, it, it'll be great, Nigel. Get yourself an EV. You'll love it. <laughs> now, one, look, you know, if it happens, I'll be very surprised. I don't think it's feasible in the time frame, but, you know, I understand it's what, pe what many people are trying to achieve. One last quick point, and it's a very practical point. At the moment, through the tax and VAT that we put on petrol and diesel, the Exchequer raises about £35 billion every year. A move to electric means that money would, in time, disappear completely, and the, the Exchequer want to make up that revenue. It seems to me that the only alternative to that is some kind of big brother road tolling uh, policy. What would you say to that? Well, I, that is, I think we need an honest conversation about road pricing and about how what the, the replacement for the 35 billion is. But more positively than that, we need to just think about our whole tax system. Now we've left the EU, now we've got control over VAT. We can reduce taxes on green things. We might have to increase some taxes on things that aren't green. Um, but it doesn't, you know, it could be fiscally neutral for, for or fiscally neutral, that's a 
jargon, but it could be neutral for, for the taxpayer. Well, I think road pricing is coming. Sean, thank you very much for coming on, on the programme. Well, that was Sean Spears from the Green Alliance, passionately putting the other point of view and believing that we can get there by 2030. I want to know what you think as to whether this is feasible. I personally don't, but I want you, wanted you to hear both sides of the argument. Let me know what you think. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Now, I sat here yesterday evening and I said to you that I was confident through my contacts on the South Coast that the number of people coming in to the United Kingdom via small boats yesterday would be in excess of 400. And sure enough, this morning, we got the figure, and it was a new record of 482. And they came again today. Look at this. Look at this tiny little boat that made it all the way across to Kingsdown Beach. I mean, extraordinary uh, that anybody would cross the channel in something as small as that. Um, I would suspect that's very much an amateur operation, possibly a stolen boat, not one of the bigger migrant boats that we tend to see that are run by the criminal trafficking gangs. But, you know, the fact is, the fact is, as I predicted, it'll be over 10,000 people. These pictures are Dover Harbour this morning. Yep, after the 482 that came yesterday, it was very busy in the channel again this morning. These boats being picked up by Border Force and brought in to Dover. Other boats that make it all the way across and, and, and land on the beaches. In fact, one landed yesterday on the army ranges at Hyde and they had to stop firing. I don't know what the numbers are today into Dover. They won't be as many as 482, but it will still be a very significant number. And nothing I'm afraid is going to change, in my view, or perhaps it will, because joining us now is Kevin Saunders, the former Chief Immigration Officer for the UK Border Force at Calais. Good evening and welcome to GB News. Good evening, Nigel. Now, I'm particularly interested in talking to you because you were with Border Force across the other side of the water in Calais. And I spoke to the Calais Member of Parliament the other day, um, and Priti Patel keeps giving the French money, 30 million last November, another 54 million a couple of weeks ago, and we keep giving the French all this money. In your opinion, are the French actually trying hard to prevent these boats from leaving French beaches? They're trying hard on the land. Their, their remit seems to be, if they can catch the migrants trying to get into the water, they'll stop them. Once they're in the water, they view it as our problem. Yeah, I mean, literally, I've, I've, I've heard reports of migrant dinghies no more than 50 metres off the French beaches. I mean, frankly, where they could get out and paddle back to shore. And yet the gendarmerie ignore that, let them get a bit deeper. And then the French Navy, how jolly nice of them, then escort those boats straight into British waters. Why are we allowing this situation to continue? Why, indeed. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, we shouldn't be. Now, it's interesting that the Home Secretary's gone to visit the Greeks um, yes. because the Greek, the Greek um, coastal patrol vessels are adopting a much different approach. They are actually pushing them back into Turkish waters. So, my argument is, if the Greeks can do it, with the support of Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the EU, 
why can't we push the, ve the, the, the vessels back into French waters? Gosh. Now, is it, the with, with these views, is this why you're not working at UK Border Force anymore? Because I don't think that's what they believe in, is it? <laughs> I'm retired, fortunately. OK. Um, but but it, it, it's a double-edged sword to a certain extent, Nigel. The French are saying uh, it is illegal for us to push the boats back into French waters, but they are not saying it is illegal for the Greeks to push the boats back into Turkish waters. Now, you're a politician. You worked in the EU. Perhaps you can answer the question. You know, oh, there the, are the no EU. rules in the EU. There are no rules there in the EU. No. Everyone does as they want, frankly. <laughs> That's right. Now, there has been a lot of argument over Dublin, the Dublin Convention. Yep. Now, as you will know very well, when we were in the EU, Dublin wasn't being enforced because the Europeans wouldn't let us send people back, despite the fact that these people had been registered in another EU country. In fact, under Dublin, the only people that were cooperating with the UK over Dublin was Ireland. So you've, you've worked in Calais, you've been part of the border force, you know this issue well. Tell me something. If we finally mustered up the courage to do what the Australians did a decade ago to stop that problem, to do what the Greeks have started to do off their seas, if we finally mustered the courage, the backbone to do it, and we took boats back straight to, whether it's Calais or Boulogne Harbour or French beaches, how do you think the French would react? The French would have a fit. <laughs> but what would, what would happen is it would bring the French to the negotiating table. At right. the moment, the French government won't speak to the British government because they're upset about fishing licences, they're upset about the Channel Islands, and they're upset about us um, telling them they're not doing their job about migrants. Uh, apparently, Macron has refused to meet with the Prime Minister. So, if we adopt a more robust approach in the yep. Channel, um, it will, I think it will scare the French, and I think they will come to the negotiating table. They've got to. Well, I, I have to say, I think you're right, but it's going to take political will. Kevin, thank you for joining us here on GB News. And that, that was interesting, folks, wasn't it? You know, basically... We could do it, and it would, bring, it would bring them to the negotiating table. That was Kevin's view, and he worked in Calais for the Border Force. Now, in a minute, if you think that Boris Johnson's government has handled the pandemic and lockdown badly, and there are many that do, I promise you, you ain't seen nothing, because we're about to go to Australia to find, out, to find out where a government has made a complete and utter mess of everything. Well, I have to say, I have to say that debate on whether we can go fully to, to not buying electric and diesel cars in 2030, uh, we had a very good debate, both sides of the argument represented, and lots of opinion coming in from you. George on email says, simple question, 
How are the millions of people who live in flats or terraced houses without front gardens going to charge their cars without massive costs to provide necessary charging sites? Well, um, the answer is we haven't really quite thought about that yet, but we'll come back to you at some point before too long. As you, quite rightly, as you say, the practicalities of this are very, very difficult indeed. Julie, on email, says people need to see images of children working in cobalt mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo before buying EVs. The finite minerals used in modern technology are the fossil fuel problems of the future. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's not only the question about, you know, child slave labour conditions in some of those mines. But remember, I repeat this point. I used to work in commodities. I used to work in metals. We are in a rapidly rising market in terms of prices for many, many metals, and particularly rare earth metals, which are needed for mobile phones, for computers, but especially for electric cars. And it is almost impossible, I think, to see the price of lithium or cobalt or any of these commodities coming down uh, for the next few years, especially at a time when the disease of inflation is absolutely back in our economies. And then you've got the problem of how do you recycle the batteries? And nobody, and I mean nobody, has yet managed to answer that question for me. If somebody out there uh, has got a solution, I want to know it, but it's the one part of this that that's frankly being ignored in this debate. Cornelius on email says the government are using the green agenda to drive a new clean industrial movement, creating employment. The UK are the leaders in battery technology. Well, that's terrific. And I'm delighted that we are. And I'm delighted that that money has gone into the Nissan plant up in Sunderland. Remember the Nissan plant that would close if we dared to vote for Brexit? No, there's a billion of investment gone in, and we're very, very pleased about that. Uh, whether we're the world leaders on battery uh, technology, I don't know. I think the Germans are quite good at it too. But that's by the by. The one thing we haven't managed to do, we haven't managed to produce batteries that can store electricity effectively. And, and, and until we do, until we do, if we rely too much on wind energy, which everybody says, isn't it marvellous, we've got all this wind energy, if we rely on that too much, we will finish up, as has happened in many parts of the world that have decided to go green, we'll finish up with power outages, and, and frankly, after 2030, no one driving any cars at all. So this stuff is not straightforward. Christian on email says we should ban diesels, which are responsible for so many health problems, but give petrol another decade. We need to use that extra time to build at least three nuclear power stations to make it feasible for us to run electric cars en masse. Well, look, we've basically closed down most of our nuclear industry. There is some new investment in nuclear. There's some investment at Hinkley Point. There's some investment in Bradwell. Uh, meanwhile, other nuclear power stations are closing. Uh, the slight problem with that is we're allowing the Chinese Communist Party uh, to get involved in all of this, which I'm not in favour of at all. Um, so, you know, this is just not straightforward. It's not straightforward at all. Uh, and I, I have to say, I do not think this will actually happen. I think it's another one of these big, big promises that Boris and other politicians like to make. But he probably won't be Prime Minister in 2030, so he'll never have to pick up the pieces. Now, we haven't yet connected with Australia. We're working on it. But another story that absolutely fascinated me. My What the Farage moment is today.
Two weeks ago, I said to the producer here, it's August, just you watch. It will be great white shark spotted off a beach somewhere. And he laughed at me because he's very young. But every August we get these stories and yesterday was no exception because yesterday swimmers at Boscombe Beach, and have a look at that picture, full page in the sun today, <laughs> Jaws scare at Boscombe Beach and the RNLI, yes, they were busy yesterday putting up red flags. The water was evacuated. A mass panic ensued. And the truth of it is that in this country... Uh, we have a huge number of different shark species, uh, you know, everything from the humble dogfish, you know, up to poor beagle sharks and basking sharks. Um, so you could say that these stories about dangerous sharks in British waters are a complete hoax. And yet, and yet, is it possible that there are great white sharks in British waters. Well, joining me to discuss all of this is a man who's dedicated much of his life to the study of sharks. It's Richard Pearce, shark expert, author. Uh, Richard, we do have actually more sharks in British waters than most people think, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got 30-something species. Most, a lot of those species are deep water species that people will never come across. And we've got some, some very iconic guys. You know, we've got some amazing people. We've got blue sharks. We've got poor beagle sharks, which is a cousin of the great white. We've got threshers. We, of course, have got basking sharks as well, the second biggest fish in the sea. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it is remarkable how many sharks there are. And yet, of all of those sharks, there's never been, to my knowledge, any evidence ever of a shark attack or a direct shark attack in the United Kingdom. Um, but... There have been some great white sightings, haven't there? Yeah, let me just go back on that point. Sure. The only fatalities I'm aware of are when a basking shark blew up the Royal Navy in 1956. And I think if you're a basking shark and the Royal Navy are trying to blow you up and put explosives on your back and you swim under the boat, then possibly you're entitled to blow up the Royal Navy. Uh, and the other one was one in 1937 that sadly came up underneath a boat. Those are the only two fatalities I'm aware of in British waters, both basking sharks, both total accidents. But yeah, Nigel, great white sharks. I mean, I know that I chartered a boat once years ago, which you used to charter to go fishing off. And I believe you were on the boat the day after the 1999 sighting. Um, what most people don't know is that that sighting was then followed in the same stretch of water by three other sightings. And all of the uh, credible sightings I've researched are never singular. There are always a whole row of them when, when the fullness of time goes by. So, yeah, I've, I've looked at about 150 of these incidents. I think about 12 remain credible. I cannot say whether they were great white sharks, but they do remain credible in terms of the evidence as given to me. So you don't believe it's like the Loch Ness Monster, a story that's a fantasy that isn't actually true? You think no, 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 no. Get, you, I mean, you believe, Richard, we do occasionally get great whites in British waters? Yeah, the technical term is vagrant visitor, uh, and I do believe we get vagrant visitors, and I'm, I'm convinced myself that one of these days we will get a tooth or a body or a photograph or something to, to, to prove that. Look, you know, um, we've got 35,000 grey seals up off the west coast of Scotland. That would be paradise for great white sharks. So where are they? Everything's right for them, you know, but, but they're just not around. So, yeah, I think we get occasional vagrant visitors, but... 
Nigel, people must not worry. I mean, if I heard a credible sighting of a white shark and I was a bit younger and a bit fitter, I would be straight in the water trying to get close to it. I would not be swimming away. I'd be there with my camera looking for it. So <laughs> this is like any other wild animal. I mean, it's just a wild animal doing its thing. So please, nobody should worry about being on holiday in Cornwall. And, and I think newspaper editors have got to sell newspapers, haven't they? So um, the headline you just showed, that front page, whatever it was, yeah. absolutely that's what happens in August. Yeah, it's a classic August story. But thank you very much, Richard Pearce, for coming on uh, and talking with your expertise about sharks. So don't worry, anybody. There's nothing to panic about. There's been the odd sighting of great whites in the country. Uh, but I've no doubt there'll be more stories over the course of the next few weeks. Now, next, Talking Pints, it'll be Peter Hitchens with me. <laughs> Well, joining me on Talking Pints tonight is author, journalist, to some controversialist, Peter Hitchens. Peter, welcome to the programme. Well, good evening. And I say cheers, but you're, you're on a cup of tea instead it's of tea. Yes. yes. Well, that's it's fair enough. Like Tony Benn tradition. He would have a bigger mug. Peter Hitchens, you've had an interesting journey. You were a socialist as a young man. I was a Trotskyist. A Trotskyist. So, 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 you, straight joy. so you were the full nine yards on the oh, left. Completely, yes, the whole way. And so how does that, Bolshevik. How does that journey go from being from where you were? Well, it's enormous fun. It's tremendously educational. Uh, you know what you used to think. You can't pretend that you didn't think it, and in my case, I don't. Uh, there are many other people who were in the same uh, political movements when I was there back in the late 60s and early 70s. Keep very quiet about it indeed. I don't yeah. because I think it's essential people know. Uh, it's probably one of the best political educations you can get, in, particularly in, in realism and in how people actually operate. Uh, and was it a rapid? I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry for some of the things that I said and did and always will be, but I'm not sorry for the, for the education I got out of it at all. Was it a rapid, overnight sort of change of position on no, issues, or no, was it no. a gradual... No, this is no, no, never overnight. What everybody does when they change their mind is they, they feel a strong pressure to change their mind. Mm. You, can, you, can, you, you know there's a door over there. You open it. Uh, there's something beyond it which you're going to have to face, but you hesitate because you know that, in fact, it will change your life. You'll lose, for a start, almost all your friends. And that puts people agree. off changing their minds. Yeah. Yeah, and so you made that move... You finished up actually joining the Conservative Party for a, ah, period, yes, I did. For a period of time. <laughs> now, I mean, I'm an ex-Tory. Terrible mistake. Well. I'm an ex-Tory as well, although I was in it for a bit. But, but, so where would you place yourself? I mean, you know, I read your stuff in the Mail on Sunday every week and, and, and other things that you do, uh, and a lot of people do. Where would you place yourself on the political spectrum today, or, or isn't that even relevant? No, it is relevant. I, would, I think I would call myself a British Gaullist. It's um, extraordinary yeah. that this combination of strong defence, patriotism, uh, strong welfare state uh, and, uh, and, and national independence isn't more common uh, in, pro in politics because I think it appeals to so many people yeah. and suits so many people. Uh, but for some reason, this country has not had it and, uh, and doesn't show any signs of particularly wanting it. But that, that would be the simplest way of describing it. For those who can remember General de Gaulle. And, yeah, and, yeah, and what he, and what he represented. You can, yeah. but even those who can't, there's a fantastic biography by Julian Jackson which describes this extraordinary life. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very sound position. Something like it exists in the PIS party in Poland, but the problem with them is that they, they seem to me not to have a particularly strong concern for the rule of law or human liberty, and that has to me to be on top of absolutely everything. Liberty under the law, any British politics has to be based upon that because that's what keeps us what we are. And you're right. 
there are huge numbers of people out there that believe in the country, believe in borders, believe in defence, believe in all those things. And the Brexit referendum was, was for many people, their one real opportunity to go to the polls and to express that. And they did. Um, and, I mean, Brexit, where we are today, it's not perfect with Northern Ireland, with fisheries. But we do actually, to a large degree, have got back the ability to run our lives now, don't we? Well, I completely disagree. Do you? No, I didn't take part in the referendum campaign. I didn't vote in the referendum. Right. Uh, I thought that we should have taken the Norway option. Uh, I thought that the referendum was, was, was designed to stay with the Conservative Party rather than the country. I think that was its, well, it was, it was offered, its, its it, whole purpose, and I think that originally, yes. I think that's what it has ended up doing. But we could have gone for the Norway option once we'd, once we'd had the vote, we couldn't didn't. we? But we didn't. We didn't because the, the campaign to leave the European Union, which was originally a campaign of people who loved this country and wanted to retain and restore its institutions and yep. independence, was taken over by a, by a bunch of uh, piratical free traders uh, who want uh, nothing of that kind. They simply want to, to take this country out of the European Union and plunge us. Uh, into a world of completely, uh, as far as I see, unrestrained free trade, in which instead of being dominated by Brussels, we get pushed around by China. I don't really see it as much of a swap myself. Well, we can make our own laws, we can regulate our own industries. We, Up to uh, point. We can control. Well, yes, of course, there are global standards, and if you want to sell a good to America, you've got to meet with their laws, and I understand that. But, so you didn't vote for Brexit, didn't participate in the referendum. Do you, do, do you ever vote for anybody anymore? I haven't for a long time, no, because I decided that the important thing, the most important task for anybody who's seriously concerned with this country was the destruction of the Conservative Party, mm. which is the great block which stands across the, 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 the actual path of any kind of Conservative reform, mm. of doing all the things that really need to be done, the, the moral, social, family things, the educational things, the criminal justice things which need to be done. Uh, which the Tory party has for many, many years not been interested in. You, as far as I can see, took a more or less Thatcherite position, where it was all about economics and money. No, good And I thought it was, I thought no, it was, no, that, that, I thought it was about um, no, national that, independence, law, and that, that, that is absolutely wrong, isn't it? Well, I don't agree. I, mean, I, think, I, mean, I, think, I think it's completely wrong. It's, I, if anything, I mean, for instance, if one, anything, one of the things about you, one of the reasons why we I'm associated with borders. One of the reasons why we haven't met is because of the position which you espoused. I don't know whether you still do. Back in 2010, on the decriminalisation of drugs. Well, let's let's get to that in a minute. Let's do that. It's a very important point. It's a very important subject. No, I mean, I think you're wrong. Anyone that, that sort of thinks of me in terms of the referendum context as being about economics, it wasn't. It was actually about borders. It was about, it was about national identity and borders, and that's what most people would identify me with. Although the economics are important, uh, and yeah, you know, I'm all for us using Brexit as a means of deregulating. But I just, the one thing, Peter, I want to ask you, you know, having had this little chat with you, and we will move on to other things, of course, you're locked down as well. But it does seem to me that nearly everything that you write and say is essentially pretty negative. Completely. I totally okay, agree. Okay, well, please you agree. In, 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 in 2010, by, by the time the 2010 election came round, I've been arguing for, I think, seven years that the Conservative Party needed to be destroyed, mm -hmm. that it had been taken over by a, a Blairite tendency led by David Cameron and George Osborne and was effectively the Blair government in a new form. It was. That, 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 in, that it was also, at, a, at the 2010 election, 
you couldn't choose the government. Whichever way you voted, you'd get a Blairite government. Mm -hmm. uh, I agree pro with that. Probably a Gordon Brown government would have been more conservative than a Cameron government in some ways. I think uh, Gordon Brown was more conservative on the euro for a start uh, than David Cameron ever was and some mm -hmm. other things. So if you were really wanting to choose on those grounds, quite possibly a Brown government would have but been preferable. No, wait a minute. This is a very serious point. You could not choose 2010 who would govern the country. What you could do by refusing to vote for the Cameron Blairite mm -hmm. uh, organised organization, uh, was to deprive the Conservative Party of a, of a working and serious majority and of a victory for the fourth time in a row. And that would have done for the Tory party. It would have fallen down. People would have stopped giving money to it. It would have fallen apart. And there would then have been the great opportunity, only opportunity, there's nothing automatic would then happen, uh, for those who wanted this country to be governed. But it'll never happen. To, to build it'll never part. happen. Well, it won't happen now. With the that's first, why, that's, with the first that's past why the post so system. Negative, as you call it. Well, the, but with the, I mean, here's the point. You know, I came closer to breaking this blooming system electorally than anybody. I mean, you know, UKIP got four million votes in the general election of 2015, and for our reward, we got one seat. And all the while, we have—that's the way it goes. But you, you then. So, so you defend what about 2019 and 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 and, and, the, and the Brexit party. And, and the, well, if the Brexit party uh, hadn't happened, I, yeah, the Brexit wouldn't have happened. Withdrawing to get out of the way of the Tory party. Which I didn't want to do. But he did. I didn't want a Corbyn government. I didn't want a second referendum. It was a tough thing to do. Peter, on drugs, I know you are very, very strong in, in your position on drugs. And by the way, I hate drugs. absolutely hate drugs. I've never taken a legal drug in my life. I never want to. Uh, and I know so many people that have been damaged by this stuff. Even the soft stuff, as they call it, like cannabis, can that's, have that's terribly... A public, that's a public relations meme. Can, can have, Marijuana is not soft. No, absolutely. I agree with you. I think it has, does huge psychological damage to people. My position on this has been that, frankly, the war on drugs has been lost, and it may be better if we regulate it in some way. But I... Well, that, that you're, you're talking straight out of the drug legalizers' playbook when you say those things. There has been no war on drugs. Uh, the, what, the, 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 what would you do? Well, I would, I would do what the Japanese and the South Koreans do. I would enforce our existing laws against the possession of particularly of marijuana, but other, other drugs as well. You cannot control... Would you imprison people or fine uh, people? Let me, let me just make a simple point. It, <coughs> nothing, it, you will never ever control anything by interdicting supply, as we do. Yep. We send warships to the Caribbean, yep. for and we send, we send soldiers to Afghanistan to destroy crops and prevent <laughs> drugs reaching <laughs> you. You will not get anywhere with any of that unless you also interdict demand. And we have in this country a very strict law against possession of drugs. The maximum sentence for possession of marijuana is still five years in prison. Mm. Uh, we don't enforce it. We have deliberately not. Would you enforce it? Deliberately not. I would enforce it, yes. Would you? Oh, yeah, but how, the question is how I enforce it. And the, the point about it, people say, well, if you did that, everybody in the country would be in prison. No, they wouldn't. Uh, mm. You're perhaps old enough to remember I, I, the 1967 law against, uh, against drunk and driving and the introduction of the breathalyzer. Uh, within a very, very short yeah, time very of young. the serious punishment yeah. of people who, who drove drunk. The amount of drunken driving in this country went zooming downwards. And it's only come back again, up again lately because the police right. so you, simply uh, stopped enforcing Peter, we're, we're, If you enforce a law, then okay. people so don't you really break believe it. we can reverse the drug. Well, I don't know whether we can, whether, whether we can reverse it. What I can it. say is this, the, the mantra, which comes straight out of the big dope playbook, mm -hmm. the mantra that the war on drugs has failed is false. There hasn't been. There's never been for Peter. Thank you for coming on. I think I actually could talk to Peter Hitchens for hours. We've barely even started, but I want to thank him for coming on this evening.
I've been pretty critical of the way the government's handled the pandemic. I know that my, my guest here this evening, Peter Hitchens, has been very critical too, and certainly of lockdown and our liberties being taken away, uh, and this assumption this assumption that somehow they own our freedom. They give us Freedom Day as if they own it in the first place. But it says nothing to the fiasco that has gone on in Australia. So I'm hoping now that we're going to Sydney. Yes, we are. Rowan Dean. Rowan, presenter of the remarkable Sky News Australia programme, The Outsiders, which I've been privileged to appear on, and the editor of The Spectator in Australia. Rowan, thanks for joining us here on GB News. Nigel, so great to see you and to be with you, and congratulations on your terrific show. It's so good to have Britain's very lucky to have you back. Well, that's very sweet of you, but forget all that. I, I tell you something, what's been happening in Australia has not made much news in the UK. You can find it if you look for it, but it's not made much news. So, as I understand it, uh, there have been about nine deaths in the Sydney area attributed to COVID-19, and you're now living again under lockdown with police on the streets, or rather the army, I think, on the streets. Is that right? That's correct, uh, Nigel. We pulled off a remarkable feat here in Australia. It, it took us 200 years to go from being one of the most draconian penal colonies on the planet to a free nation of larrikin spirits, of uh, free speaking, uh, you know, uh, anti-authoritarians. And in the last 18 months, Nigel, we've gone hurtling back. We are now back to where we belonged all to begin with a penal colony. Uh, we have people snitching on their neighbours. We have people uh, terrified if you're not wearing a mask. We have police grabbing little old ladies or women in pyjamas and handcuffing them uh, just because they posted something on Facebook. We've got drones over our beaches making sure that people aren't sitting there maybe you know, having a picnic on the beach like they used to without wearing a mask. Nigel, it is the most extraordinary thing. And as you say, we've got everything. It's a, we've got the pandemic, but we don't actually have COVID. Not properly. We've had less than 1,000 people die. You've had 130,000 people die. We've had fewer than 1,000 people die, and yet we have the most authoritarian, draconian measures probably on yeah. the planet. Even and yet, the Chinese, and Nigel, are now saying we're too strict. And yet, in Sydney, it would appear that despite this draconian lockdown being back in place, that cases are still rising. But, Rowan, I must ask you this. The, perhaps the biggest success of Brexit so far is that we weren't part of the European Medicines Agency. We made our own decisions on the vaccine, on procurement, and we've had a real, you know, in many ways, one of the world's leading vaccine rollouts. You know, now we've got... You know, three quarters of the population have had a vaccine. And yet I read the figures today from Australia. You're still only at 17 percent of people that have been vaccinated. Now, is this reluctance to take the vaccine or is it a, or is it just government incompetence on a huge scale? It's both. And the uh, the uh, Morrison government put all their sort of back the AstraZeneca 
uh, vaccine and bought tons and tons of that. And then right at the last moment, just as they were about to roll it out, we had various state chief health medical officers saying, oh, no, 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 don't take AstraZeneca. We don't want young people to take that. They might get blood clots and die. We'd rather they take a risk of COVID. So the poor old Australian uh, punter who's never really understood what COVID is about because we have so few cases and so few viruses here because we shut the borders so early, they're going, well, hang on, what is it? Should I be taking this? Should I be taking that? So there's this massive vaccine hesitancy. At the same time, Nigel, we have all these petty premiers rushing around saying, oh, I want more vaccine. I want less vaccine. You can't take this. The people are completely confused, Nigel. The whole thing. I mean, I I thought our leadership was bad, but goodness gracious me. Uh, And finally, Rowan, um, you know, I've been down to Australia a couple of times in the last few years, and I've met you both times I've been down and appeared on your programme and spoken at a spectator event. And all, I mean, might have even had a drink together. It's possible. Um, when will I be allowed back into Australia, do you think? Well, this is the sad thing, Nigel. Probably not for years to come because we have this mad zero COVID strategy, which is about as achievable as net zero emissions. We're aiming for zero COVID in our penal colony. I don't think we'll ever get there. And in the meantime, people are going, well, I don't want to take the vaccine. So I think it'll be a long time between drinks, as they say, Nigel, which is, which is our loss because we love having you down here. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rowan, for joining us. Well, that was Rowan Dean, Sky News host from Australia. Uh, very early in the morning for him, half past four in the morning, but just telling us uh, what an absolute fiasco uh, things are down under. Now, it's time for Barrage the Farage, where you fire in your questions that I don't get to read first. John asks, what are your thoughts on Premier League players continuing to take the knee? I think whatever way you look at this, I think taking the knee and the Black Lives Matter movement, an overtly Marxist organisation that wants to defund the police, I think they're synonymous. I just don't think you can separate one from the other. And if people want to have some gesture, some anti-racist gesture, fine. But don't have that one. It's been utterly besmirched by Black Lives Matter, which is a bad organisation. Becky asks, if you were 17, would you get the vaccine? It's a brilliant question, Becky. I, it would depend. If I felt I was vulnerable in any way at all, I would. If I wasn't vulnerable and I was a fit 17-year-old, I would really, I mean, I would certainly have second thoughts. I'm not saying I wouldn't, but I would certainly have second thoughts. Steve on email asks, if Boris offered you a peerage tomorrow, would you accept it? (laughs) Boris won't offer me a peerage. He can't do that. Of course he can't do that. He owes me so much, he could never ever admitted in public. So, I mean, frankly, that is, just isn't going to happen. Um, and as Peter Hitchens said, I did do Boris quite a big favour, uh, even by raising Brexit as an issue, because Boris would never have done it on his own. <laughs>